This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. This episode is also proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson. Reckitt Mead Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive NFML portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meadjohnson.com. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphna, how's it going today? <laughs> it's going okay, you know. We're getting down to the wire for those uh, people taking the test. But, but you know, we still have some time. So, so Journal Club it is. <laughs> Plenty of time. Um, yeah. Uh, this is um, this is a bit of a bizarre week, right? So we released yeah. a, an episode with Dr. Paul Offit uh, a few days ago, and that was done as a special episode for for the first annual Eastern Medical Research Conference that uh, took place March 10 to March 12. Thank you to everybody at the Eastern Society for Pediatric Research and the American Federation for Medical Research to reaching for reaching out to us mm-hmm. and sponsoring the giveaway for allowing us to uh, to put ourselves put, put us in contact with Dr. Paul Offit that was a lot of fun. So yeah, yeah. we love but, we love doing special episodes. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was actually a lot of fun. It was um yeah, it's it's always more work, but it's fun work. And uh, for the people who are uh, not following our other podcast where we announced it as well, but we're very grateful and thankful to everybody who donated to our campaign mm-hmm. to help NICUs in Ukraine. Uh, we have now officially exceeded our original goal of $20,000. Obviously, if you're following the news, you do not need any reminder that there's definitely a need, um, especially considering what happened recently with the bombing of the maternity hospital. Um, So yeah, there's uh, thank you to everybody who donated. Your generosity is really appreciated. Uh, I was just in touch with uh, some of the folks at the Coalition for Premies, and uh, they're also expressing their gratitude uh, towards everybody who has uh, donated and who's helping them in their efforts to uh, provide relief to the Ukrainian NICUs. Yeah, they're. I mean, they're taking supplies over the border every day. It, it seems like, and like they said in our interview, it's going to be an ongoing need. So certainly, if people haven't donated yet and want to, our funding yeah, we'll, site we'll, is still active. We'll leave it. We'll leave it open for anybody. But um, I'm pretty. I wanted to mark the the mm-hmm. moment of our of our community getting together yeah. and re- raising that kind of money within the span of a week that that's amazing i'm very proud of of calling yeah, ourselves super cool part. yeah okay and we have a lot of uh very uh important papers to go over today so i guess i'm starting yeah all right daphna i'm going to give you the choice you want to do rsv or insulin Let's do RSV. Oh, yeah. Okay, you're opening a can of worms. Let's go. <laughs> so, people, this—I mean, the papers I'm presenting today are pretty big. I think at least two yeah. of them are are massive. 
So what is this whole RSV business? If you look in the New England Journal of Medicine, so um, there's a paper this uh, week that is called Nircivimab for Prevention of RSV in Healthy Late Preterm and Term Infants. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, this is a follow-up study of an article that came out about last year in July 2020 that I do not think we reviewed on the podcast. We did and not. That, and that paper was called Single Dose Near Sivimab for the Prevention of RSV in Preterm Infants. So I'm going to review this paper, and then I'll give you two, the other paper that came out as an addition because the protocol is pretty much the same. And I'm assuming right. people care more about preemies. I don't know why, but they, they want to hear about the preemie stuff. And then we'll go over some some of the extra things. So Well, I think I mean this is a very this is a very interesting paper. Oh, this is not, this is not uh, just for preemies, you know. This is game changing. So right. let's start from the from the background. So they mentioned that RSV prophylaxis obviously is available currently in the form of uh, Synergis, uh, Pelivizumab, which is basically RSV IgG, and it's administered for the people who do not know in five monthly injections. And the cost of these injections is prohibitive to the extent mm-hmm. that many um, regulating bodies and insurance companies have um affected very restrictive recommendations. Um, And basically, according to the paper, it limits prophylaxis to less than 2% of the annual US birth cohort. So really, really a very tiny minority of of babies are having access to synergies, as you probably all know. Now, nircivimab is a recombinant uh, human immunoglobulin G1 kappa monoclonal antibody. It binds the highly conserved site zero epitope present on the prefusion conformation of the RSV fusion protein. Now, why are they testing this new thing? Why are we doing this? Well, nircivimab is a molecule that has a much, much longer half-life and uh, might be even just as effective as synergis. And so the rationale is, if you could get away with a single dose of RSV right. prophylaxis, then you're going to be allowed to protect a much larger number of infants. Okay, so um, who were their participants? So they were healthy infants who had been born preterm between the gestational ages of 29 weeks through 34 and six, 34 weeks and six days, and who were one year of age or younger entering their first full RSV season. The participants were randomly assigned in a two-to-one ratio to receive either an IM injection of 50 milligrams of nircivimab or normal saline placebo during a two-month period immediately before the RSV season. Obviously, um, this was not a trial to look at babies against synergies, right? And we'll get to that in a minute. But I want to clarify that right now since we're, we're talking about this. And so this is babies who would not have been candidates for synergies, right. who were now offered this other form of RSV protection against a placebo. Because lots of kids get RSV, not just oh, our creams. And, and many die of RSV. That's right. Yeah. So, but we'll talk about <clears throat> synergists with um, uh, synergists versus um, synergists versus, oh, the name is escaping, near Sivimab. Okay, we're going to get there. So the, the participants of the trial were monitored medically 
And um, for 150 days after nirsevimab or placebo was administered, that was either done by telephone every two weeks and in person during trial sites visits on day 8, 31, 91, 151, as well as on day 361 after administration of the dose. The monitoring was done by uh, site investigators, or if the children were treated elsewhere, then they had to review all the medical records. And if they received medical attention at a location other than the trial site, then the parents had to uh, take the child to the participant site where uh, they could be evaluated for the respiratory illness. The trial was conducted at 164 sites in 23 countries. No need to say this was extensive. Yeah, that's amazing. the, the trial, however, I think this is important to mention just for disclosure, was designed by the MedImmune and AstraZeneca and funded mm-hmm. by MedImmune and AstraZeneca mm-hmm. and Sanofi Pasteur, which uh, I think is important, um, is important to, to disclose. For sure. The primary endpoint was medically attended RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection through 150 days after nirsevimab or the placebo was administered. The secondary efficacy endpoint was hospitalization due to the condition during the same time period. Okay, so far so good. They <laughs> You're also doing a were great trying. Job. They're also trying to determine the pharmacokinetics of nirsevimab and the incidence of anti-drug antibodies, as described previously. That means that um, they wanted to know the levels of the drug, and they wanted to know if, because it is an immunoglobulin, have patients made antibodies to the drug itself. A positive titer for anti-nirsevimab antibody was defined as a titer of 1 to 50 or more. This was the the statistical analysis. The efficacy analysis was performed in an intention to treat uh, fashion. And that's pretty much it for the methods. Mm -hmm. Um, So to summarize, they're trying to find out preterm babies, one dose of nirsevimab, does that cover you for the RSV season? So now let's go in the results. The participants enrolled between 2016 and 2017. They were able to have 1,447 uh, babies who received injection, 966 in the nirsevimab group, 481 in the placebo group. 97.5% of the participants uh, who were actually randomized, completed the 150-day efficacy period. 94.2% of those uh, assigned to the near, near Sivimab and 93.8% of those assigned to placebo completed the 360-day follow-up. So which, we, is, which is actually amazing. Frankly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I am not going to stop mentioning these high follow-up rates because yeah. if, like me, you've done follow-up mm-hmm. work, it is atrocious, right? I mean, when I was able to get close to 60% follow-up for like right. two, three years, it was to me the biggest accomplishment. And you read these, these studies where it's like 97, 95%. It's, it's tremendous. Well, I mean, I, we, we'll talk about this, but I would venture to say that's a higher percent than people who return for their subsequent doses of RSV, you know, yeah. prophylaxis. That's, so I that's don't, the point. That, having done this type of work, I don't know, it's not described in the, in the paper, did they give them like a little incentive, free right. car rides to medical appointments, free gift cards? We've done that in the past. And, and these are just as good. I mean, if you want to incentivize people to come back for follow-up, that works. But I don't know if they did. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's talk about efficacy. Listen to this. Medically attended RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection occurred in 2.6% of the participant in the near Sivimab group 
and 9.5% mm. in the placebo group. Hospitalization for this condition occurred in 0.8% of those in the nirsevimab group versus 4.1% in the placebo group. The incidence of medically attended RSV-associated low respiratory tract infection was 70% lower mm -hmm. with nirsevimab than with placebo. The incidence of hospitalization for this condition was 78.4% lower with nirsevimab than with placebo. Um, over the entire 150-day efficacy period after administration of the dose, infants who received nirsevimab had a lower risk of medically attended RSV-associated low respiratory tract infection than infants who received placebo, as well as a lower risk of hospitalization for this condition. Of the participants who were hospitalized because of RSV infection, all those who were admitted to the intensive care unit, that was five participants, or received assisted ventilation, that was four participants, they were all in the placebo group. Mm -hmm. Among participants who had medically attended RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection, fewer nirsevimab recipients, four, which was 16%, than placebo recipients, 32%, received supplemental oxygen. So like a third almost. Um, medically attended lower respiratory tract infection from any cause through the 150-day uh, 150 days after the dose occurred in 25.8% of the participant in the placebo group and 19.7% in the nirsevimab group, representing a 23.5% lower incidence. Similarly, a lower rate of hospitalization due to any respiratory illness was observed with nirsevimab than with placebo, representing a 42.5% lower incidence in the nirsevimab group. The occurrence of non-RSV lower respiratory tract infection was similar between the two groups, so really very specific to that pathology, which suggests that infections due to other respiratory pathogen was not affected by nirsevimab. In terms of the safety data, five deaths occurred through the 361-day uh, period, two deaths in the nirsevimab group and three in the placebo group. One death in the placebo group occurred after the trial period, and... No deaths were known to be due to RSV or considered by the investigator to be related to nirsevimab or the placebo. Let's talk quickly about pharmacokinetics. The mean half-life of nirsevimab is 59.3 plus minus 10 days. On day 151, serum concentrations of 98% of these, of these children in the nirsevimab recipients were above the targeted 90% effectiveness concentration mm -hmm. threshold of 6.8 microgram per milliliters. So they still had good levels at that time. And in terms of anti-drug antibodies, they were detected in about 5.6% of the participants who received nirsevimab and in 3.8% of those who received placebo. So there is like a baseline effect there as well. So in the discussion, um, nirsevimab, they conclude that nirsevimab provided protection with a single IM dose, probably owing to its increased potency and extended half-life of 63 to 73 days, compared to the shorter half-life of Synergis, which is 19 to 27 days. And they're highlighting the fact that on day 151, a single dose of nirsevimab, most infants still had serum concentration that were above the target threshold. Okay, so this paper basically tells you that we may have a medication that even if it, I, I haven't been able, I haven't had the time. We've been very busy. I wanted to look at how much this injection would cost technically. Right. But even if it's as expensive as one for Synergis, right. one dose should lower the cost five times. 
right. uh, because you do not have to go through these five monthly injections. So even if you say they're both um, antibodies and so, so then. Well, and there's, there's a cost, right. To the, to a, the system and to the society of, of a family having to come back every month, right. For another appointment. Um, so it's not just money, but, it, but it is just money, right? Parents have to have gas. They have to have transportation. <clears throat> they have to have a babysitter for the bigger kids. You know, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, um, costs that we, we're not, we can't even calculate. Exactly. You're absolutely right. I wonder how much time I've, okay, I've been speaking for 15 minutes. Let me continue quickly. <laughs> so then you have the paper that came out mm-hmm. this week. Was it this week? Or yeah, March, March 3rd, which is basically the same trial looking at the use of nircevimab in late preterm mm-hmm. and term infants. I'm going to spare you the, the, the protocol. It's pretty much the same, but the babies had to be now at least 35 weeks, right? So they were no mm-hmm. longer preterm. So they had almost 1,500 infants that underwent randomization. Uh, They had about 1,000 in the nircevimab, about 500 in the placebo group. Um, Medically attended RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection occurred in 1.2% of the nircevimab group compared to 5% in the Mm. placebo group. Um, The efficacy was 74.5% for nircevimab. Hospitalization related to RSV lower respiratory tract infection occurred in 0.6% of the nircevimab group compared to 1.6% in the placebo group. And then looking at anti-drug antibodies after baseline were detected uh, in 6% of the nircevimab group and in 1% of the placebo group. Serious adverse events were reported in 6.8% of the nircevimab group and 7.3% in the placebo group. So the bottom line is that in, in late preterm and term infants as well, the single injection of nircevimab administered before the RSV season protected healthy late preterm and term infants from medically attended RSV-associated lower respiratory tract infection. They tried to make a case, by the way, I'm just going to say like the one thing I could, I could the, the first author on this latest paper is Laura Hammett, and this is all part of the Melody study group. Um, the one thing I would say is that they keep saying, oh, this should cover for like the duration of an RSV season. Mm-hmm. 150 days is not a, a full RSV yeah, season. Yeah, especially down here in Florida, right? It's Right. Yeah. I mean, if you start- It's not like, five months in Florida. It's like eight months in Florida. Yeah. And, and you could say that like maybe 150 days is like the peak uh, mm-hmm. where you have like the winter months, but it is a bit more than that. So that's the only knock I would have on the paper. Now, the last thing I wanted to mention is that if you go in the correspondence inside the New England Journal of Medicine, you should be able to see something, a letter called Mm -hmm. Safety of Nircevimab for RSV Infants with Heart or Lung Disease uh, or Prematurity. And so that's a very quick, it's not even a correspondence, but it's almost like a very brief report Mm -hmm. on the study that they're currently running that's not completed. And they're re- reporting the safety and pharmacokinetics of nircevimab through the, f- the first RSV season. They're running mm-hmm. a study that where they're testing it over two RSV seasons, but they have data over the first one, so they're reporting it. And what they're doing is that they're looking at preterm infants, and they're randomizing infants based on whether they have BPD or congenital heart disease versus neither. So they enrolled preterm infants who were eligible for synergis and who were born before 35 weeks and who did not have congenital heart disease or chronic lung disease. And then they had infants who had uncorrected, partially corrected, medically treated CHD or chronic lung disease warranting therapeutic intervention within six months. 
and the infants were random were randomly assigned to receive either nirsevimab in a single fixed intramuscular dose um, if they were less than five kilos. They changed the dose based on whether they were more mm-hmm. or less than five kilos, <clears throat> or five once monthly intramuscular doses of synergis. So what's important for you to understand here is that you have um, a subdivision. So within each group, you have a synergis and a nirsevimab, and you have a nirsevimab group. So in the in the babies who had BPD and and congenital heart disease, they split the two, and one group got uh, five doses of synergis, one dose of nirsevimab, and for the just preterm cohort, they had they did the same: one synergis group, one nirsevimab group. So they are not providing uh, in a table format, but they are writing that seven of the infants in the trial had medically attended RSV infections of the lower respiratory tract. Four in the nirsevimab group, that was 0.6%, and three in the synergist group, okay? Um, I think the, the safety and efficacy data was very similar. But what's interesting is that it doesn't seem that in this case, um, nirsevimab is, is superior to synergist. It may be working just effectively, but again, it's a much simpler way of administering it. So are we moving towards, so the bottom line is, all right, it's been 20 minutes. Are we moving <laughs> towards a phase in our career where synergist is going to become a thing of the past and every baby at risk is going to get these nirsevimab infect- injections so that they would prevent RSV infections? It's, it's very possible. I mean, I think this is, uh, yeah. Well, I think like lots of things in the pharmaceutical industry, it's good it's good to have a little bit of competition, right? Be it to lower the, the prices. And, um, I mean, we ha- we would have to show efficacy, but, but even synergists, it, it's only efficacious if you get it right. And, um, you know, where I trained, we were a small community and we, it was all the, all the associated, you know, pediatric clinics, you know, fed into the academic center. And so they were, they were good at doing the insurance referrals and, and getting synergists for their patients. But our experience right now where we are is, 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 not the case. Um, general pediatricians Always. are not doing the prior ops. They don't want to handle um, the injections at all because it's a lot of work, and that's that's five appointments, you know, that they that they have to make, you know, nurse visits for, and so that means relying on subspecialists to do something that's really um, yeah, it's 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 a vaccine appointment, right? Which were right. which are supposed to be very quick and uh, right. that get the lowest reimbursement. But if you have to be on the phone with an insurance company that's for right. two hours to argue whether a baby needs synergist, yeah. it's it's where there uh, are like concrete criteria. <laughs> yeah, and it's no wonder that they turf this to a pulmonologist yeah. and say, "I'm not doing this." And so, I, I mean, a lot of babies are not getting it, and, and that's. And that's, even if you have a place to go get it, it's a lot of effort for these families who may have, you know, babies with multiple comorbidities to, to go get yeah. to all the appointments. Yeah. So, I mean, so I, anyways, I'm, I'm glad to see that there's some, you know, something on the horizon to, to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, and, and again, maybe because maybe the cost will be lower. I don't know. Um, well, I, yeah, I think we'll have to see. But yeah, the paper for the preterm infants was published July 2020, 2021, and the uh, the one for late preterm 
and term infants was published uh, this week, this 2020 actually, so two years ago. Oh, so that's why that's yeah. why we missed it. The podcast didn't exist at the yeah. time. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Daphna, you're up. So I want to do this paper um, from pediatrics, um, influence of genetic information on neonatologist decisions, a psychological experiment. Um, lead author, Catherine Callahan. Um, and I thought this was a really interesting kind of study design. So um, their objective was to determine how different types of genetic information with kind of uncertain implications for prognosis would influence the decisions of clinicians to recommend like more intensive care versus moving towards palliative care. And the, you know, the authors talk a lot about why this is important and they're right. We're using um, genetic testing so much more now and it's just going to become more prevalent. Um, and so I thought this was a really interesting study. So in fall of 2020, they sent a 22 question uh, questionnaire to 3,600 NEOs using the listservs of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on neonatal and perinatal medicine and the Children's Hospital Neonatal Consortium. Um, so the questionnaire had questions. And then in addition, they used these four unique clinical cases and there were two versions of each clinical case. And I'll tell you about them, but the, the first case, um, described a, a variant of uncertain significance. So, you know, we get those all the time. <laughs> the second case, a genetic diagnosis that affects neurodevelopment, but not survival acutely. And the third case, a genetic versus non-genetic etiology of an equally severe pathology. And four, the fourth case was a pending genetic testing result. Um, and so participants were randomized to see all four clinical cases, but only one version of the case. So one version of the case had information about genetic testing and one version of the case did not. And then they were asked to respond to each case using a Likert scale. So I'll tell you about the cases because I think it will help kind of elucidate what they did here. So the first case was a patient with chronic lung disease um, at, at a stage where they had to have a discussion about tracheostomy and gastrostomy tubes. And in the quote unquote genetic version, the patient had um, a variant of um, uncertain significance Un in a certain unknown significance. What did I say? Uncertain? Same thing. <laughs> Same thing. Um, in a surfactant protein. And in the non-genetic version, it they said that there was neg negative genetic testing. In the second case, they described a preterm infant with sepsis and asked about um, like a central line to continue the antibiotic, antibiotic therapy. And in the genetic version, the patient was also incidentally diagnosed with Williams syndrome. Um, and in the non-genetic version, the genetic testing was negative. And just for understand just as a reminder for people who are taking the boards. Williams syndrome is a gene deletion uh, associated with mild intellectual disability um, and unique personality characteristics and some endocrine and cardiac problems. Um, but the survival is not significantly reduced. It's, it's not a life-limiting condition um, unless the cardiac abnormalities are very significant. The third case was a patient with pulmonary hypoplasia, and participants were asked about ECMO. Uh, was the baby a candidate for ECMO? So in the genetic version, the hypoplasia was from a mutation um, with a broad spectrum of outcomes, um, which could include very severe lung pathology or not that severe, uh, not 
severe lung pathology. So it, it, it didn't, you couldn't know for sure what, if the baby symptoms were related um, to this mutation. And in the non-genetic version, the etiology was oligohydramnios. The third case um, was uh, looking, sorry, that was the third case. And then the fourth case, um, the patient was a term male with progressive muscle weakness and ventilator dependence. And the genetic version included um, a pending whole exome sequencing, whereas the non-genetic version really had no mention of genetic uh, testing. So uh, basically, participants were asked about their readiness for goals of care conversation. And they were also asked to what degree all of the information would inform their recommendations for goals of care, like need for long-term IV nutrition, brain MRI results, social work, um, you know, certified nursing help, um, and uh, other things that the baby might need. There was also a bunch of additional questions about their own um, demographic details and work uh, work environment. So there were a total of 551 respondents, um, about 20% of those who um, were asked to participate. So in the case, in the first case, the finding of a, a variant of unknown significance was associated with participants being less likely to recommend a tracheostomy and gastrostomy tube with a p-value of less than 0.001 and more likely to recommend transitioning to palliative care. Um, and this confirmed the author's hypothesis that a presence of a variant of unknown significance would be associated with people being less likely to recommend invasive care. Um, even though um, they have no idea if the variant is related to, to the um, problem or not. They also asked about what helped, what was a factor in their decision-making. So they were, they were concerned that pain and suffering were ranked as more important decision-making factors for those who saw the case with the variant. In the second case, the incidental, incidental findings of Williams syndrome was associated with participants being less likely to recommend central line placement, p-value less than 0.001, and more likely to recommend transitioning to palliative care. Um, and so this was uh, also consistent with their, their hypothesis that a genetic finding with even kind of mild to moderate neurodevelopmental implications would be associated with favoring palliative care over invasive interventions. Same thing, they listed um, pain and suffering and long-term survival as more important, the most important factors in their recommendations, um, even though Williams syndrome is not associated with a decreased long-term yeah. survival. In the third case about um, providing ECMO, um, they were more likely to recommend transitioning to palliative care if the patient had a genetic etiology of disease, even though the patient's severities were similar, p-value less than 0 0.004. Um, and their, their hypothesis was that a genetic etiology um, would, would mean that providers were more likely to recommend palliative care and less likely to re recommend ECMO. Um, they didn't have a difference in the rationale for their decision. And then the final case, uh, so whether or not they had um, the whole exome sequencing back, um, they actually, the reported readiness for having a goals of care meeting did not differ if they had the sequencing back or if the sequencing was pending or if there was no report on the sequencing. But the providers ranked finding a genetic etiology is the most important factor for informing the recommendations to the family. Um, MRI results were the second most important informing recommendations, followed by whether or not the patient would orally feed. 
So I thought this was a really interesting study. I think they did a good job at looking at a real severity, like a, a breadth of severity of cases mm-hmm. and um, a variety of problems that we face when we order genetic testing. Um, I They were not surprised by the findings. I was surprised by the findings, but I'm were not you? a geneticist. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think we have. Uh, I think this is great. I mean, the, I like psychology. I like psychological experiments. Mm. So when my two worlds are colliding, it's a mm-hmm. lot of fun. It's nice. Uh, <laughs> and I think it underscores a lot of issues with the progression of our field that we've gone so complex that we've compartmentalized everything into big blobs of genetics versus no genetics and. Like you said, we're not really being very granular in like what kind of genetic syndrome. Maybe it's not uh, the right. what about penetrance? What about mosaicism? What about all these things, right? Where uh, these decisions should matter. And in truth, we we hedge basically. We say, well, genetics then more likely to get so and so. And that's what we've talked with guests on in the past, mm-hmm. which is that because the prior data influences how we manage babies in the future, saying, well, because I know that babies with genetic disease are more likely to need a trach because that's what was reported. And that means that the one I'm presented with must also be needing a mm. trach. And it's like, that's not always the case. Um, yeah. So um, I want to see more. I want to see more of these studies. Yeah, I, I think they're really important. I think it underscores also the way we do informed consent about genetic mm-hmm. um, information because, and if you're studying for the boards, it's a good reminder that you have the opportunity in some uh, disease states to pick a very specific test because you you may be in the situation where you get a lot more information than you intended to get. And, you know, how do you help a family navigate that? Especially if they weren't, if, especially if they didn't understand what the burden of, of testing results may, may be, you know, I think it, especially in some of these very acute, severe cases, parents say, yes, send send whatever test you want. Let's get all the information we can get. And I think a lot of times that's how we feel too, but we get a lot of those variants of, unknown significance and then you don't know what to do with the information so i thought it was a cool study katherine press callahan who's on twitter at kp callahan Mm -hmm. md uh Mm -hmm. keep 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 churning out these studies (laughs) that's right i I want more this is too entertaining all right is it my turn now yeah okay let's go so we're talking about you'll do insulin now yeah yeah okay so this is a paper that was published in JAMA Peds. First author is Elise Menk. The paper is titled Efficacy and Safety of Enteral Recombinant Human Insulin in Preterm Infants, a Randomized Clinical Trial. For disclosure yeah. purposes, this is a sponsored trial by mm-hmm. a company called Nutrivia, I think is the, is the name. Mm-hmm. And it's obviously the company making the product. So um, again... I don't think I don't think it plays much of a role in this case, but I, I want to be fully transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go over some of the information that's presented in the background. I think it's interesting. So they are mentioning how the natural insulin concentration in human milk usually peaks in the early postpartum period, but then dec- declines to a basal level within the first three days uh, postpartum. And uh, insulin is not something that we supplement in formula or anything like that, right? So. That was an interesting observation. Mm-hmm. Uh, recombinant human insulin formulation for enteral administration in preterm infants has been developed in order to combat feeding intolerance and thereby improve short and long-term clinical outcomes. 
So they did like a, a small like phase two trial that they're referring to where they had about 16 babies and that was very successful. So now they want to take the next step. They, they're performing an international multi-center double-blind placebo-controlled randomized clinical trial to evaluate the efficacy and safety of two different dosages of RH insulin as a supplement to human milk and preterm formula in preterm infants with a gestational age of 26 to 32 weeks. So is it something, the question is, are we, are you going to start supplementing feeding with insulin? So this, um, so let's talk about the study design. The multi-center double-blind placebo-controlled randomized clinical trial involved 46 neonatal intensive care units throughout Europe, Israel, and the United States. And it uh, ran from October 2016 to April 2018. So for the participants, they included babies who were born preterm between 26 weeks and zero days and 32 weeks and zero days of gestation and with a birth weight of 500 grams or more. And they were eligible if they were clinically stable, able to tolerate enteral feeds, and expected to win off parenteral nutrition during their stay in the primary hospital. Um, the exclusion criteria were, I think, interesting. Major congenital malformation, not surprising. Suspected infection, uh, an FiO2 above 60% or more at randomization. Uh, intrauterine growth restriction, which they defined as a, as a weight less than the third percentile on the Fenton, or less than the 10th percentile with a combination of an abnormal Doppler velocimetry. Uh, confirmed ent necrotizing enterocolitis, Bell stage two or three, uh, if the babies were already on full feeds at the time of randomization, uh, if they were older than five days of age at the time of randomization, if they had hyperinsulinemia requiring 12 mg per kilo per minute of glucose, and if they had any other way, any other form of systemic insulin administration, if there was a, store, a history of maternal diabetes requiring insulin during the pregnancy, or if the babies were NPO or had to go through extensive resuscitation after birth or uh, CPR and so on. Obviously, right, this is a safety and efficacy mm -hmm. uh, study. So, so they're not looking to cure or fix anything. They just want to see, can we give it and is it safe? Okay. They... Uh, Participants, they were randomly assigned to receive either a low-dose form of the RH insulin, which was 400 micro-international units per ml of milk, or a high-dose, which was 2,000 micro-international units per ml, milk, per ml of milk. And then there was a third group, which was the placebo arm, and they were allocated in a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one fashion. They did some stratification based on gestational age. I'm going to skip that. And the trial uh, began within five days postpartum, so about 120 mm -hmm. hours. If the infant was exclusively fed mother, the mother's own milk, treatment was not initiated until 72 hours postpartum st because of what we discussed in the introduction about the peak of the insulin. The standard duration of the intervention was 28 days, but the treatment was discontinued earlier in cases where a unit or hospital transfer was required. In terms of how they were advancing feeds and all these things, um, that was at the discretion of the, of the providers and the neonatologists. What were the study outcomes? The primary outcome was the time to achieve full enteral feed. And that was defined as an enteral intake of 150 ml per kilo per day for a total of three consecutive days. Because obviously, if you reach 150 one day and you go NPO the next, that's, that's not really achieving right. full enteral feeds. <laughs> um, secondary outcomes were the number and percentage of infants re reaching full enteral feeds within 6, 8, and 10 days of the intervention, time to achieve an enteral intake of 120 ml per kilo per day for 3 or more consecutive days, 
the number of days receiving parenteral nutrition, growth velocity, body weight on study day 28, body weight z-scores on study day 28, and change in body weight z-scores. They had some safety outcome, including okay. serious adverse events and suspected unexpected serious adverse reaction. Uh, blood glucose tests were performed twice daily in the first four study days. And thereafter, on alternate days between 7 a.m. and 10 a.m. before enteral feeding, and an extra blood sample was collected at day of life, at day of, at study day 28. What are the results? All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? Are you guys ready? <laughs> 40 minutes into it. This is like the slowest uh, journal club we've ever done, but that's okay. <laughs> 303 uh, babies met the eligibility criteria and underwent randomization. 110 infants were allocated to the low-dose RH insulin, 95 to the high-dose RH insulin, and 98 to the placebo. Baseline characteristics were similar between the two groups. The trial had to end early. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Based on interim futility analysis, of the 303 included infants, 86% reached the primary outcome, which was full enteral feed. The major reason for failing to reach the outcome were early study termination owing to hospital transfer and early termination of the trial by the sponsor. Mm. Time to achieve full enteral feed at least 150 ml per kilo per day for three consecutive days was significantly reduced in 94 infants receiving low-dose insulin and 82 infants receiving high-dose insulin compared with 85 infants receiving placebo. Compared with the placebo, the difference in median time to full enteral feeds was four days for the low-dose group and four days for the high-dose groups. They were, by the way, in the statistical analysis, they mentioned how their expectation was to maybe reduce the time from like um, sure. eight days to like 6.6 .6 days. Mm -hmm. So they, they, uh, they definitely um, overachieved. Yeah. The proportion of infants who achieved full enteral feeds in the first six, eight, and 10 days of the intervention was significantly higher in both active treatment groups compared to the placebo. In addition... Time to achieve an enteral intake of 120 ml per kilo per day or more for three consecutive days was significantly reduced in both active treatment group compared to the placebo group. And the number of days to re receiving parenteral nutrition was significantly reduced in both the high-dose group compared with the placebo. So not really in the, in the low-dose. Weight gain rates did not differ between uh, the different groups. Um, Let's talk about that. So the, the subgroup analysis by gestational age was interesting. The median time to achieve full, full enteral feeds in infants with a gestational age of 26 to 28 weeks, um, 26 and 0 to 28 and 6, was 15 days in the low-dose group, 12 days in the high-dose group, and 16.5 in the placebo group. The difference between high-dose and placebo group was statistically significant. In the subgroup of 29 and 0 to 32 and 0 weeks, the median time to achieve full enteral feeds was significantly reduced in the high-dose group compared with the placebo group um, from, uh, seven, from 11 to 7 days. The safety outcomes... They were a total of 16 out of 108 infants in the low-dose group, 11 out of 88 in the high-dose group, and 19 out of 97 in the placebo group that had one or more severe adverse events. These events involved uh, hypoglycemic events. When it came to neck, it occurred in 6% in of the low-dose group, 5% in the high-dose group, and 10% in the placebo group. 
um, none of the infants developed serum insulin, insulin antibodies. So the conclusion is that enteral administration of these two different types of RH insulin dosages was safe and compared with placebo, significantly reduced the time to achieve full enteral feeds in babies with the gestational age of 26 to 32 weeks. They support the use of RH insulin as a supplement to human milk and preterm formula. Daphna. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting study, um, especially <laughs> because, you know, insulin does a lot of stuff, right? So it's also interesting that there is no difference in like the blood glucose values and there was no difference in growth, um, which is interesting, you know, like for it to exert enough um, enough efficacy to make this major change, but not any of those changes. Um, but you know, we're always looking for ways to, <laughs> to, uh, get babies to full feeds faster. I mean, we and said it was going to be an impactful journal club. I mean, we have that's right. <laughs> a new way to prophylax for RSV. We have a new in supplementing babies with insulin. I mean, what are we going to yeah. do next? <sighs> <laughs> okay. So this was an interesting paper in journal of pediatrics, um, because, like so many things in our day-to-day -day work, it is evaluating something that we do all of the time without really thinking about it. So this paper is called Use of Cotton Balls and Diapers for Collection of Urine Samples Impacts the Analysis of Routine Chemistry Tests in Evaluation of Cotton Balls, Diapers, and Chemistry Analyzers. Um, Can I say something? Yeah. Everywhere I worked before my first job as an attending, they collected urine through the bag, right? Yes. And every time you ask for urine, the nurse was like, oh my God, the bag, the bag. it falls <laughs> off, et cetera, et cetera. And then I take my first attending job and I see the cotton balls and I'm like, this is so freaking smart. <laughs> and anyway, I'm sure you're going to talk about like, what does that, what do we talk about when we mean cotton balls? Because I'm sure there's some people who don't know. Who haven't what, seen it. Yeah. I know. Yeah. That's true. Okay. Lead author Stefani um, and Thomas. Um, and so uh, this is coming out of the University of Minnesota, um, the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, um, in collaboration with Northwestern and Nationwide Children's Hospital. I think I got almost everybody. The objective was to see if the cotton balls affected the analysis of urine. And you're right. Maybe not everybody knows what we're talking about. So I'll, I'll, tell, I'll describe their uh, protocol for you. So, I mean, I guess if you've never seen it, basically what they do is in an effort not, you know, the bag's always spilling. The bag's always spilling. So they put <laughs> cotton balls you know, near the urethral opening <laughs> in a in a baby diaper so that it catches urine. Um, and that's basically what they did here. So they basically took, well, it's what they tried to imitate, I guess. So they took basically leftover urine samples. And again, we're looking at electrolytes, not anything infectious. Um, so they pooled all of these kind of leftover urine samples to generate 20 samples with a minimum of 100 mLs each. And then they saved a few of the samples as control samples, 10 mLs each of urine that was not exposed to cotton balls or diapers, and it was stored. And then they created these six different treatment groups. So they wanted to look at different types of cotton balls, different brands, different brands of diapers, and different analyzers in the lab. And different brands of babies. No, <laughs> no that's not what they did. So I'll tell you the, uh, 
I'm no expert in cotton ball brands, but I'll tell you the different treatment groups. So they they had Curity Cotton Balls with Pampers, Curity Cotton Balls with Huggies, Curity Cotton Balls with Loves, Curity Cotton Balls with No Diaper, um, Centurion Cotton Balls with Huggies, Centurion Cotton Balls with Pampers. So they didn't have all the combinations for, they didn't have all the same combination don't send me back to calculus where i have to calculate like four uh, that's right right. um and then and then this is what they did with this so for each of the six treatment groups they took about 20 mls of urine they applied it to five to ten cotton balls which is way more cotton balls than i've ever seen anybody put in a diaper so just of note um, and then they put it either in a zip top plastic bag, so that represented no diaper, or they um, put the they put <coughs> sorry <laughs> they took the cotton balls, put a little piece of plastic over them to represent like skin in the diaper, and then they wrapped the whole thing in a diaper, and then the these diapers full of urine soaked cotton balls were incubated for an hour at 37 degrees Celsius as if they were being held in a, in a, against a baby in a diaper. And then all the samples, both the controls and those exposed um, to cotton balls were divided into aliquots and sent to five different hospital laboratories for analysis, each using a different analyzer. Okay. I think we got that. Hopefully everybody understands about the cotton balls. I think we get it. I think you explained it very well. Okay. Um, Across the nine analytes, um, there were no apparent trends that were specifically associated with the brand of cotton ball or diaper. And when you say analytes, you mean like a a urinalysis? So not a urinalysis. So they looked at um, they looked at like urine electrolytes, so protein, albumin, creatinine, calcium, potassium, magnesium sodium, urea, and phosphorus. Mm, okay. So no, like that was actually my question. I was interested in the urine pH, but that wasn't one of the analytes. Yeah, no nitrites or leukocyte uh, right. esterase stuff that we tend to look at for infections and things like that. Right, right. Okay. And I, I mean, I guess that's because most of us, you know, if you're really worried about infection, you probably get a cath sample, right? So anyways, that's why they were specifically, I think, looking at that's fair. The electrolytes. Um, so there's, no, like I said, no apparent trend specifically associated with brand of cotton ball or diaper, which was, I guess, nice to know. But there was significantly decreased measurements of albumin and total protein from the urine that was pre-soaked in both brands of cotton balls and in all brands of diapers compared with the control urine that um, uh, was not soaked in cotton balls, not wrapped in diapers, um, regardless of which analyzer they used. Um, Total protein demonstrated an inverse proportional relationship between the level of analyte and the extent of the negative bias based on the analyzer. Um, And they decided that the diapers did not significantly contribute to the absorption of protein as a result from the analysis of the purity plus no diaper or the one in the zip top bag um, also showed um, significant bias um, similar to the samples kept in diapers. The other tests that showed significant differences um, were calcium, potassium, and magnesium, but they very much depended on the analyzer on which they were run. And that's, I don't, I mean, that's valuable, right? Because it depends on what your analyzer is, but 
to me, not the main point of the point of the story. So if you're interested in that, you have to take a look. Calcium though appears specifically affected. And I thought that was important because one of the ways we, we test for a disorder of hypocalcemia is, is using urine calcium. Um, so uh, the other measurements um, sodium, urea, and phosphorus measurements for all urine treatment groups demonstrated consistent results with measurements from the control urine and on all um, five analyzers. Um, so, definitely, if you were looking at if you were looking at albumin or protein, it would underestimate. If you're using cotton balls, it would underestimate those values, and that's a major reason why I think you would look for something like proteinuria. Um, and chemist, uh, I told you calcium, um, was specifically affected. Um, nearly all platforms overestimated the concentration of calcium in the urine, um, and the magnesium in urine, uh, when soaked in the cotton balls compared with control unit, uh, control urine. But again, it depended on the analyzer. So when I think about the things that we test for, <laughs> you're using urine, those are some biggies. I was glad to see that maybe the so the sodium was not affected, but the moral of the story is it's not benign. It's not. It's not nothing. So it's I guess we perfect. have to deal with the bags, which I'm sure are also more expensive and they're harder to use. And you definitely don't collect urine within like the first few attempts. Is what I've learned. Mm -hmm. The cotton balls are definitely faster, but that's. I thought it. I thought it was good to know. Yeah. Yeah. I like that paper. <laughs> now you know you're excited about that paper. Okay. Your turn. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to go with the most. Uh, yeah. We don't have a lot of time. <laughs> nope. We don't. Have you seen this paper? Sixth hour transcutaneous mm -hmm. bilirubin mm -hmm. and need for phototherapy in DAT positive newborn. We had a little argument, Daphne and I, about, about yes. that specifically. Yes. Um, you know, first, I'm obsessed with the bilirubin. So. so this is coming out of the <laughs> Department of Pediatrics at the Naval Medical Center, mm -hmm. which is kind of cool because if you Super look at cool. the author names, it's not doctor, it's Major That's Michael right. <laughs> Papacostas. Second author is Captain Dwight Robertson. Uh, and so that's... That's pretty neat. Anyway, uh, this is this is the kind of joys we can have when we do <laughs> the podcast, you know? It's a little wins. So what is this um, story about? So they um, studied basically a large sample of babies who had ABO incompatibility and DAT positive uh, results to better characterize the outcomes and to evaluate the predictive ability of an early hour six like taken at six hours of life, mm -hmm. transcutaneous bilirubin as a timely, inexpensive, and non-invasive screen mm -hmm. for identifying which infants will need phototherapy in the first six hours. So Daphna has been mm -hmm. pushing me to revise the bilirubin protocol at our institution to include transcutaneous bili follow-up for the babies who have DAT positive results. And I've been making the argument that it, it may be unpredictable. So we've been having an argument on this. So it takes- For months. For months I, we've been talking about this. Yes, but I want to highlight in all humility <laughs> how amazing it is that I'm the one who takes on this paper. Oh, that was not, that was not, I mean, I did that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, in all humility, uh, I'm reading really good. Um, in any case, all right, I'm getting tired. 
the this is a retrospective study done at the Naval Medical Center from 2013 to 2017. And what did they do basically? I'm gonna stop reading from the paper. They do they do the usual thing that we do. They get mm-hmm. sample from the cord if they know that the baby is DAT positive, and they get like a hemoglobin, a retic, and a billy. Um, the one thing that they said was maybe we could also get at six okay. hours of life as we're getting mm-hmm. all these, these other tests, we could get a transcutaneous belly and that could help us determine uh, what is the validity of doing a transcutaneous belly at six hours of life in babies who are DAT positive in order to find out what is the likelihood based on the, the initial six hour belly that they will need phototherapy. It's funny because they do mention how Babies who are DAT positive, like the protocol is that they have to be screened before discharge for for, for hypervalerubinemia, right? In the proto- so in the yeah. introduction, they say, this is really dangerous to just screen them once. And I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> we definitely weren't arguing about that. We were- <laughs> yeah, that we were not arguing. But they used the, the Draeger um, transcutaneous measurement tool. And uh, you can look up online which one you have at your hospital if you have one. And they, the way you do it is that you press it um, on the baby's skin, and then it, you get three measurements. The way they did it is that they they saved the highest measurement. Uh, the initiation for f- the, in, the 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 initiation of phototherapy was left at the discretion of the pediatrician, but obviously they mentioned that they're following the AP guidelines, as we are we all are probably doing. So that was not really. Uh, earth shattering. The primary outcome of the study was the need for phototherapy at less than 24 hours. So they had 772 babies with ABO incompatibility. Um, Phototherapy was required in 36.4% of infants. 20% uh, of the infants required it in before uh, the first, uh, within the first 24 hours of life. They had to reduce the sample. So from 700, it went down to 346 because of those were the babies where they actually had serum and transcutaneous. So they had a correlation potential for the two. So that's, uh, that's where the numbers were. So birth weight, so this is the, the, the crux of the results. Birth weight, infant blood type B, total serum bilirubin, reticulous site count, and transcutaneous bili were significantly associated with the receipt of phototherapy within the first 24 hours of life on univariate analysis. Looking at the multivariate analysis, it revealed that serum belly and the retic count were the only independent predictors when the transcutaneous was excluded from the model. Mm-hmm. And conversely, when the blood test results were excluded instead, the transcutaneous alone was the best predictor. There was no demographic variables that were independently predictive of phototherapy uh, in the first 24 hours. And uh, the, R- the, the ROC curves for the two model uh, are shown in the figure in the paper, and the area under the curve for the two models were 0.96 and 0.90, respectively. And so they established this, this, uh, they established these cutoffs, right? So if you look at the table three, you have these different TCB cutoff with the probability of phototherapy. So at the six hour, if you have a TCB of 2.4, the probability of phototherapy is 8%. If you have a TCB of three, it's 15%. A TCB of 4.5, it's 48%. Uh, 5.3, 5.7, it's like 70 to 80%. And if it's above 6, then you're 89%. In the, pep, in the paper, they mentioned a cutoff of three of less than 3 yielded a negative predictive value of 98% and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.09 for the newborns who were in this category and only 2.4% below this cutoff needed phototherapy. 
within the first 24 hours. A cutoff of 5.3 milligram per deciliter or more yielded a positive predictive value of 85%, a positive likelihood, like a positive likelihood ratio of 20.93, and uh, 33 babies, 84% needed phototherapy within the first 24 hours of life. So now, again, paired serum and transcutaneous mm -hmm. belly values were compared, and the six-hour TCB was completely off. No, I'm kidding. That's not what they found. <laughs> the paired TSB and the TCB were uh, were compared. The transcutaneous was slightly lower um, than the serum, and but highly correlated with an R of 0.8 and a p-value of less than 0.1. So uh, what I'm taking so the conclusion is that among high-risk ABO incompatible DAT positive newborns, the six-hour TCB is highly predictive of the need for phototherapy in less than 24 hours. Um, Daphna, what were your thoughts? My thoughts were, I, you know, I don't even want to use it to predict phototherapy at 24 hours. I want to, you know, what what we do right now are very frequent transcutaneous or not transcutaneous serum daily serum. measurements, which really bother babies and it really bothers parents in the newborn nursery. So I'm quite pleased with with the paper. I, I'm hoping yeah. you will reconsider no, so. your I position. Think no, so my position for the people who my position is that I uh, was thinking that for DAT positive babies, the the protocol should be left at the discretion of the physician. I feel like some some physicians want to follow the bellies more closely, depending on the degree of hemolysis and so on and so forth. So there's there is no we don't have an official protocol for DAT positive, <laughs> but I do have to say that I really like this paper as is. I mean, I'm thinking, what about? Um, doing this where at six hours you get both a serum and a transcutaneous, see where they both are, and then follow your transcutaneous Q6, Q8, Q12, whatever you want to do. Um, that might save a lot of blood draws. Um, oh, yeah. But maybe no, I, what I'm thinking is that there's there's this, there's this uh, unsaid question of can the TCB replace the serum? But maybe you just need like one serum at the beginning to sort of calibrate uh, almost like the baby to find out where they are. So you're saying your hypothesis is that there are some babies where this is not true. Well, I'm just saying that this is, you know, I, I, it would have been nice if we had uh, more demographic factors on the baby. That's, yeah, that's right. true. That's so true. All I'm saying is this before aiming for reducing the serum, the pokes and, and the serum bellies to zero, maybe we can gather more evidence by just using it more frequently, all the while having maybe one or two time points where you correlate the serum with the, the transcutaneous with the serum. And eventually, once our data accrues and we have more confidence with the how reliable and how how well do they pair, you can potentially just get it rid of it, rid of it altogether. But anyway, I think this is interesting. I, this is, this My is, argument is that we would use the trend Right. And if you were very close to light level, then you send a serum billy. And I imagine that some of our friends on Twitter are already doing this in their units because I know many units are already doing it. So I hope they'll give us their input on yeah. their experience. Yeah. Let's hope we <laughs> we'll start. have a little discussion about yeah, it. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> All right. It's an hour and seven minutes. We have a yeah. meeting in six minutes. I, I'm not sure. Should we wrap it up? Um, save these for next time. I can, I can do, listen, you can save the one you have for next time. I just wanted to Fine. mention, 
I just wanted to mention one more thing. Um, for all the trainees out there, the Canadian Neonatal Society, the, Can- the Canadian Pediatric Society, uh, published a position statement mm-hmm. on the discharge planning of the preterm infants. I love that. Basically mm-hmm. outlines what are the objectives to safely discharge a baby home. Mm-hmm. They will most likely differ on one or two things from what you do. But I, I really like when other countries who are practicing similarly to us are publishing these things because it allows you to get a baseline, especially when it talks about like uh, like bradycardia monitoring, mm-hmm. how many days, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's nice to get a sense of what other people are doing around you so that in cases where it is not straightforward and maybe yeah. the medical team and the family have differing opinion, it's nice to have another opinion that you can base this on and say, well, I know that in Canada they do it differently and maybe that's another way that we could do it. Um, I mean, not that these recommendations are completely uh, novel, like they're very much middle of the road and, and not mm-hmm. expected, but it's nice to have a, a document that outlines them like bullet point after bullet point. That was, uh, that was really good. And then, <clears throat> so I recommend people check out this paper. And then there was this other paper by our friend, uh, Ariel Salas. That we, no, we didn't even get to that paper. We did not get to that paper. I think but we'll have to review it next time. You know what? I'm I'm yeah. going to just um, mention the the main outcome so that people can can check it out and we can have a reason to put it in our in our um, in our on our website. But basically, it was a quality improvement project to try to reduce the time of hospitalization based on some feeding interventions. It is superb like yeah all, you should check the supplements they have all sorts of things about q-based feeding provider mm-hmm. uh directed feeding there, there's so many great things and they were able to really make an impact at the university of alabama the paper is called improving time to independent oral feeding to expedite hospital discharge in preterm infants um yeah i mean this is like if you're interested in qi this is how you run a qi my friends that's <laughs> it's really really good and um yeah um, I will post that and maybe we'll review it next time. You're right. Maybe we'll start off with that next time. Yeah. I think we'll have to go into detail on that paper, but, but I will post it on the website because I want to advertise it. That way if people want to start, you know, start yeah. making changes. They can do so. And then the last thing we're going to mention is the fact that we have a new sponsor for the podcast for the next several weeks. That's going to be uh wreck it meet Johnson. We're very thankful for their partnership and, uh, yeah. So, uh, they're helping us, um, pay the bills here at the incubator. So this is, this yeah, is nice. Keep, keep the lights on. That's right. Um, so thank you. Thank you to Wreck It Me Johnson. We're happy to partner with you guys. And uh, as always, a big thank you to Casey, who's our, uh, who's our biggest supporter. Um, thank you guys. For Daphna, sure, for sure. I will see you. I will see you around the hospital tomorrow for, <laughs> yeah, tomorrow for board good. review. We have board review tomorrow. That's, that's right. Take care. <laughs> thank you for listening to this week's episode of the incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nikupodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at drnicu, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at drdaphnamd. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.